This is the Ben Ryan Podcast. For today's show, I'm really pleased to be able to introduce you to the fantastic Aidan McCullen. Aidan played professional rugby for over a decade, including huge clubs like Leinster and Toulouse, and was capped by Ireland too. But since his playing days, he has transformed himself into one of life's great learners and communicators. From hosting his own amazing podcast, The Innovation Show, which is listened to by none other than Bill Gates, to lecturing, executive coaching, and writing his first book, Undisruptible, we dip into lessons learned from all of those facets of his life, as well as his role as father to his two young sons, which you'll hear has been informative in more ways than one. But we start with a question that Aidan has recently started to ask himself. I always like to have a project going and my current project is I ask myself a question. What would my 100 year old self tell me? Man, I am so glad you did that for me. Right. So that that was the kind of thought experiment. And and, uh, the answer was look after my mobility and my diet now so that when I am that age that I'll be going, oh, thank God I did that. That's so that's I'm, I'm doing keto. And then this intermittent fasting, but actually it's called feast and fast. So you do every second day. You've moved towards plant-based as well, or have you gone just to keto to protein? I tried, I tried plant-based for a while, Ben. And, and, um, you, you know, I, do you know what, actually I'll, I'll go back a bit because I actually, you, you know, I, I have to, sh- to show the innovation show and the beautiful thing, and you know this from having podcasts, what people who listen to podcasts often don't see is that the host is learning so much as well like it's such a joy to interview people every week and and with with my show I've authors like you've read my book and thank you for that and that gives you like a chance to read it chance to take notes chance to kind of think about your notes then interview the person and then edit it and it's just a great learning tool it's the best MBA you'll ever have and I was thinking back to this the a recent show I had is a guy called Johannes Krause, and he he discovered a missing link in humanity, right? Only recently, and, and actually, thanks to exponential change, because he entered, he was looking for a thesis subject, and somebody sent him this cryogenically frozen finger. <laughs> and he's like, what the hell am I going to do with this? So he takes the finger, and he, and he ends up discovering this uh, new race of humanity, this missing, just... And there's there's more definitely there's you know some got wiped out, but he thanks to the exponential rate of technology and uh, genome tracking he was able to actually track it. So that's how he did it. But here's the reason I share that. He was telling me right. So this is fascinating, right? So if you think about hunters and gatherers, right? So there was farmers and there was hunters. So if there was farmers and hunters, they ate differently. So a hunter, you know, would just eat meat, and a farmer didn't eat meat because it needed the, the oxen to pull the machinery. So the, the, they went more grain-based and more milk-based. And I thought about that. And I was like, oh, wow, that means, you know, the way we're all, we're all spring from, you know, it's out of Africa hypothesis, it's called. But we then, we then went off in our separate ways and we evolved. So some people might have a different preference for diet based on their heritage, based on their, their background and where they sprung from. Uh, and a fascinating thing on that that he shared was because if you think about um, farmers, so farmers had a limited amount of milk because 
they only had a limited amount of oxygen and productivity was uh, the productivity of the cow to produce milk was quite small because they were working all the time. So milk was this scarce resource and our bodies evolved to make sure we didn't compete for milk. So think about this. A woman has a baby. She's giving milk to the baby and everybody else around the table starving. And here's this woman who's, yes, our mother or my wife, you know, my partner, but she can produce food for us, right? So the body changed amazingly to adapt to become lactose intolerant at a certain age. So we become lactose intolerant at a certain age. And that's why that happened. And then he brought it further. He's like, that's why in places like Italy, where milk and dairy products are scarce, that they use kind of fermented cheeses and stuff. And they don't really have the cappuccino or the flat white or the latte. They actually have that really serre, you know, the real tight espresso. So anyway, that, that was just, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. So anyway, you get where my mind is. It's like a melting pot of all this stuff. So I tried plant-based, didn't really work for me. And I went keto and it totally worked for me. And I, what I mean was some of the old pains I had. First, they came back with a vengeance. Like I had a knee up and that came back. And it was as if I had the knee up all over again. But then what happened was I... I had this dermatological problem. I was going to a dermatologist. It was just like these little rashes all over my skin. They all just disappeared, man. And I, I'd been waiting eight months to see the specialist. And I went in to see him and I'd started keto in the meantime. I went in, I was like, I have nothing to show you, man. I was just totally cleared up. And I said, is the keto? And he goes, nah, nah, I couldn't be that. Was your diet okay before then? Oh yeah, like I, I was, I was real clean eater. Like I didn't, I don't, didn't really eat carbs anyway. Like I, I wasn't, I wasn't carrying any, any lead. I wasn't carrying any weight. I, I didn't need to lose weight. And I, you know, the funny thing is, and my wife pointed this out to me, you know, the way, like you have this in you as well, where you're always, you need something to, it's like a magnetic force to pull you to do something. And, and if I don't have that, I feel a bit like, yeah, this is, feels uneasy for me. And I, I just started going, actually, what do I need to work on? Well, here, here's the, tr I was saying this only to my wife last night, because she was going to go and she's, you're, you're really dedicated to this. And, and I'm not like obsessive. What I, I always think is you need some trip switch that just kind of just gets you there and like actually makes sense to you. And it was that thing about the hundred year old me, but also I always think, used to think of eating sugar and sweets and, you know, nice things as, actually oh it's it's a waste thing but i never thought about what it does to your internal organs or to insulin or to you know you can cause diabetes essentially from even so you can eat clean all week and then go mad at a weekend and actually cause you diabetes for yourself i was like what so those kind of contrasts really helped me when i was able to see and go no way man i'm not doing that to myself and uh yeah, so I just i i, I dug into the diet um, doing that now as i said to you before we came on intermittent fasting uh i've been doing that for over a year anyway i kind of find that easy i used to struggle with rugby to eat in the morning anyway i used to force feed myself i'd be like gagging <laughs> eating like a six-egg omelet one of the things that um i've had recently is turmeric i don't know if you've been using that at all but i've been using shots of turmeric and the same thing happened to me with my injury so i had a knee injury that needed an operation and i'd had injections to try to avoid that it wasn't working and turmeric after I don't know, about three or four weeks, literally just the pain started to, to disappear and it's gone now totally. And I had this tendonitis that just was inflamed. I couldn't sleep, gone because of that change in diet. So I'll have little projects as well, physical projects around my diet. I don't know about you, but I'm a bit like um, the fly 
film where you'll try stuff out before you want to push it onto maybe some of the athletes you work with or friends or family to start. So the, I'm doing taped breathing at the moment. I don't know if you've oh, come well, across well that. And, yeah. and um, I find that re- really good. I mean, that's definitely one that I recommend to, to everybody. The breathing thing, like there's there's a very simple breath. I don't know if you did, do you, do you know the four, seven, eight breath? Have you heard of that, Andrew? Yes, yeah, yeah, go for it. No, explain it though. Well, yeah, well, it's just a simple one. So my kids are young, my kid, but I've, I've been training them on this early. And and actually, uh, one my older guy just got a Fitbit, and he's only he's only eleven, so I can show him now the feedback of breathing. And he he was he I actually it was only yesterday because he only got the Fitbit set up yesterday, and he's like, look, by doing the breathing, I dropped twenty on my heart rate. So and I was like, going, yeah, I told, I told you, man, you know, and because they can't see it, and I think that's a nice thing about being able to see it. But again, as back to our point about it brings in some good stuff and, and bad stuff. He was doing a lot. He was walking up and down the stairs to get his steps up. <laughs> I was yeah. like, oh, man, you know, there's nobody measuring your steps. And he goes, oh, yeah. But um, he he was. Uh, so the four, seven, eight breaths guy, Andrew Wilde, by the way, brilliant uh, books. And he he's all about the diet to cure yourself and food and and breathing. And just back to what you said, like breathing most of us breathe like pigeons all day like we're going around with these little light breaths we don't take a deep breath for those people who work in offices think about the time where you're you have to get that email out the door before you're running out you'll actually catch yourself you're like you're holding your breath and, and that's that's what stress does you, you just hold it all in you're holding in carbon dioxide as well so you're not actually getting that that flow but the four, seven, eight breaths, really simple. You breathe in. So you start with an out breath, clear yourself in for four through your nose, hold for seven, and then you blow out. And sometimes people, when they first do this, they struggle to get eight. You have to kind of get your timing right of the eight. And at the very end, it should be like, you know, when you're breathing on a window to try and fog it up, it's like this kind of, <laughs> you're, you're doing that at the end. And it's great. And as Andrew Wiles says, it's a practice. So you have to practice it. You don't just do it once or twice a day, which is still good. Do it. But it, it's a great, I, I think of these little things as it's so short. It's 30 seconds or something. As a men, mental amuse-bouche, I call them, Ben, where you're, say you're going from a phone call or a Zoom call to another one, or you're going to meet somebody or even like a decompression chamber of finishing work and going home to your family, whatever it is that these little exercises are so simple, but that if you build them into your practice, they actually make such an immense difference. Again, not immediately, but think forward to the future you. I've always been into breathing and, you know, you play around a little bit with it. And I really like having, I've been put under short amounts of high stress, whether that's, you know, freezing yourself in a bath or whatever it is. But but that um, the holding, the breath holds when walking, is a massive wake-up curve to when you're feeling stressed or anxious or you've had a bad night's sleep. I did it this morning and I, I hadn't slept brilliantly last night. It was quite hot and I, I walked out to grab a coffee and I took my breath to inhale uh, through my nose and then I took my breath out and then you just, you're just walking, just holding, you know, without any breath and seeing how long you can hold your breath. And the first four steps, I started to feel suffocating and I had to take a breath. And normally I'm about 20 steps and it, I thought, you know, hadn't done anything particularly differently. I just had a bad night's sleep and that had altered just everything, really. And so then by the time I, I had had my coffee, done some breathing, um, walked back, I was back to my kind of 15 to 20 steps of that. And it's a really good kind of 
trigger for me to understand if I'm feeling anxious or I'm just a little bit not quite, you know, my engine's not running as it should do. And then I, 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 um, it was a good lesson for me. It's something that I really, I love all the breathing stuff. And that'll be a question probably my 100-year-old self. Um, it'll be around breathing, I think, you know, simple stuff like that, getting that right. I know it sounds sounds so silly talking to athletes sometimes about breathing but for me as well I, ju I just think that's that's super important it's the exact same thing that happens in organizations where if you think about thinking work or strategic work or actually reflective time to be able to it's not it doesn't feel like action or even breathing doesn't feel like pumping some weights and seeing some you know bulging bicep and i think that's one of the problems it's because it's slower and if it's if it's I always, this changed my mind, like the exponential, right? If it takes slower to get there, it's going to last longer. So, cause, cause you're actually a quick win is kind of almost like a, a psychological steroid approach. Like you get a really quick win, but then it's going to, you know, it's going to also revert very quickly, but when it's slow and evolved over time, you get a great win. And, and I, I was going to ask you that cause I wondered how players have evolved. Like, I mean, one thing I would have loved, man, I don't know about you, because I was always trying to stuff was YouTube. I would have loved to do that because you never knew if you were even doing your weights right. You know, I, I wasn't that talented as a player, but I was really disciplined. Now, I'd probably have injured myself because I'd be training, I'd be doing every type of exercise and every time I probably wouldn't sleep because I'd be trying to knock everything out. But uh, I wondered how players like psychological training was something that I wish I did and I wish I knew about. And it was just difficult to find that stuff. I mean, it was in libraries, but libraries weren't in my consciousness back then. So I didn't have, I didn't have, it wasn't in me to go to a library and get a book on the mind or something like that. But uh, I would have loved and done it. Man. Like, what are players like? Are they open to it now? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say they are. I mean, it was just, I was the same as you when I was a young, younger athlete. I actually wanted to find out more about all of the psychology of everything. And I wrote a letter to a psychologist that I think I'd, I'd heard them on, on BBC probably at some point. And, and they did write back to me, but they just, I think, and I was 15 and I was running a good level, but I was getting nervous, you know, the week before I'd be throwing up, you know, days before my race, even at a school race where, you know, it might be a, an 800 meter race and you you know you're going to beat everyone by a couple of hundred meters but you'd still be throwing up before and thinking of various things i used to fall over on purpose um because i just didn't i you know self-sabotage was high wow and and this and, and this psychologist wrote to me back i mean at least they wrote to me but they said you're too young to be worrying about any of that sort of stuff just, wow. just you know get on with it and i guess that got my curiosity into thinking about the mental sides of things and so athletes now i mean they're curious the good ones around how they can use it positively social media is flying in all the time into their consciousness to in all sorts of levels so you know i'll give you a couple of different examples as soon as the game's over you know some of the players I work with in football they'll straight on social media see what people the fans think about them oh, no. as you said as you said in your in your book you might get 10 people that say you've had a great game today, loved it. And then you get one that's saying you're terrible. You pick up on that one, right? Yeah. Because that, that, this is one thing that perhaps we go back from, you know, how we're, how we're modelled. Maybe that's not a great thing. It'd be good if it was the other way around. I know, so, yeah. You know, but anyway, so, so, but they'll still do it. They'll still look at it because they want those kind of those, those chemical hits, you know, for people to see they're good. But they also look at it if they've done badly or if they know they've done badly and that can put them into a negative cycle. But even little things like 
the nutritionists have a really good meal plan for them and, and recovery for post-match. And it will include some carbohydrates because they need to get their glycogen stores back and everything else. And they won't eat it because of Instagram, because they want to look good. They want to look ripped. And, and yet, you know, that is their job, their body. And they're not spending, you know, they, they, they aren't doing that. And so there's, there's those sort of things around it. And I, and I think one of the other things, going back to the, the question, younger athletes are different to the athletes that you and I were, where we would talk a lot more to our mates, would interact a lot more with everybody. Communication skills for the newer generation, they don't talk as much. They don't communicate as much. They do things in different ways. And in team sports, where you know you've got to open your mouth, you know, to make sure that, you know, it gets you out of a lot of trouble being able to open your mouth sometimes and say something in a team sport, they, they just don't do it. It's a skill that you've got to really try to engage them to learn and to understand. And some of that will then take the individual one-on-one -on -one stuff and communication. I work with a great guy called Steve Salas, who's, um, who goes into inner city schools and turns them around and failing schools. And he's all about communication and getting them to understand in that language. So, yeah, he's so tons of it, Aidan, is, is a short answer, I guess. Jake and, uh, Jake and uh, Josh are your two sons, right? Yeah, that's right, man. What is it like having you as as dad? Oh Jesus, the poor guys. I I don't know. Like my, <laughs> I'll tell you what my missus says. She goes, she's like, can you not just be with them and stop trying to make everything into a lesson? You know. Um, I suppose that's one thing I I need to be wary of. I I mean, again, man. You know, you know, I'm I'm a simple character. Like I I looked at I looked at the time you have available with your children before they no longer need both want and need to be around you. Uh, and I, that sounds terrible, but actually I read a book, a uh, guy, I think he's the UK guy, Steve Bidolf, uh, called Raising Boys. And it was really, it, it was really valuable. I read it before I had kids. And because, um, you know, I was like, I hope I'll have a boy <laughs> eventually. So, so luckily I didn't, I didn't read the other one. I was, I was like, what a waste of the book. But uh, because he has a Raising Girls book and now he has Raising Adults actually. But um. The idea here was he talked about the cycle children go through. So, and this is really useful for people with kids because when you're like a dad of a young kid, they, you're like the guy who changes the odd nappy, maybe mixes some bottles and brings the bins out. That's your, you know, and you kind of feel like a spare wheel. Like you're like, I'm a total tool here. And um, you're kind of in the way a lot. <laughs> so, so it explains like this is normal because they're, they're all about the mother because that's survival. Then, and and you see this happen. They start to kind of look at their dad and kind of go, "Oh, you're big. Well, you're 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 strong, dad." Like, and and what this is is they're learning how to survive in from you. So you're teaching them how to survive in the wild, essentially. If you go back to our origins again, and then, but this is really important because this is this got me into mentorship. I have a brilliant mentor, and he the serendipity of this man. I met him when I was reading this book, and he and he he says, "You're always reading some crap. What are you reading?" And I told him I was reading this book and he goes, give me one nugget. And it was this, it was like, I was telling about the cycle. And then this was the part at 13, when a kid goes around 13, they start to look beyond you as their dad, because they're looking for outside nurturing from, you know, a, a, a shaman in the tribe or something, or, you know, some type of external force, because there's this natural part where they need to be able to compete with you like it's not and don't take it as a snub that's natural and that's why they start to rebel a little bit and then you have all the hormonal changes and stuff like this and even so much so that the, the old tribes used to manufacture this you know that they'd have a 
a kid out in the in the wild and they'd spend the night on their own and all the older guys would be around making no, noise of animals and stuff and scare the crap out of the kid but he makes it through and the kid then feels you know fantastic and feels that they've bursted through this this uh, sheath of life and actually that was really useful for me because then i thought about actually i don't have much time really when you when you think about the weekends and you know you you travel a lot like i i coached for a while when i first retired from sport and i was just never around man you know for until josh was three i was barely there because i was just always gone coaching nighttime eight weekends blah 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 and then i just went ah oh, man this is this is not for me because i just i would just I just I, I had moved on from rugby as well, but I just um, I said, okay, well, I'm gonna actually really invest in the kids because I would hate them to ever go. Oh, my dad wasn't really there, so now I'm kind of like, like they're a little bit too much. <laughs> so I'd rather be there a little bit too much that they go. Geez, dad's always hanging around like a bad smell than actually not, and because uh, it's not gonna last long. And and I think we think of life as shorter than it is and, and if you kind of go well that that segment certainly is very short if you think about that the commitment of 12 intense years maybe of being there going to games and all that kind of stuff and then they don't really want you hanging around that much and then then you'll get that time back a little bit you know as i say in the book it's like a season the season in life and you kind of go through this it, it's spring for your kids like so you're there it's, everything's growing etc and while it's spring for your kids, it might be winter for your marriage a little bit. But when you see it that way, you kind of go, okay, well, that's just on ice for a moment. I need to nurture it as much as I can, but I need to put most of my energy here. And then I'll be back and then I'll have more time again. I'll have time to read about my mates, whatever it is. So that's that's how I think about parenting. You've you've mentioned something there that I wanted to pick up on and in your in your pod which you know i'm here bill gates is is an avid listener as well the innovation show you quote a lot in people you know you've read if you've read a book you, you'll give them a bit of a passage back sometimes from the book and and that cued in me really with one of the one of your chapters around managing contrasts opposites really and you talk about a strange dynamic unfolds when we commit to a vision while we experience a slew of serendipitous events that spur us on we also encounter the exact opposite of what we desire every imaginable obstacle arises every conceivable thought why we should stop comes to mind i love that because it's so true and i have it always in my thought process when i'm working or living i always think opposites as well you know whether it's negatives or positives that's something that's driven you quite a lot, would you say? It took me a while to to learn that, I suppose, man. And, and just on the book, I mean, the book for me was, look, I've, I, these things have helped me. It wasn't that talent of a player. I can see when I do keynotes or workshops or even with the kids. And But you asked me about being a dad. I tested a lot of these thought, thoughts on the kids and kind of goes, does that make sense to you? And even so much so that they gave me some of the analogies I use and that they, they actually came up with them. But um, the contrasts, what happened, I suppose the good way to think about this is what happened was, and this links to the parenting. One day um, I came home and my wife, Neve says, oh, Josh, Josh is after something happened in school. He won't tell me what happened, but he's had a bad day or whatever. So I this was back when, they were bathable. So when they would let us have a bath, which doesn't last very long. So it was my, my turn to give them a bath. 
So it come in and back this time I used to wear a suit. So you can think of me throwing off my jacket, pulling up on the tie, pull up the sleeve of the shirt, start uh, testing the water in the bath. You know, the way you see, te- test the temperature. And um, I start kind of swooshing it left and right. And I noticed something that I never really noticed that you do that as a kid and you play in the bath. But what I noticed was that the, the wave, I just noticed the shape of the wave and there's a, there's a crest and a trough at the same time. And because you, when you see waves in the ocean, you don't see that because they're just on up and down, up and down. But this was like one wave. And I was kind of going, eh. and then I was like, oh. and this is why my wife keeps going, we stop coaching them and just be a dad. <laughs> I was like, boys, come in here. And they're like, come in and like eyes glazed over going, oh, here he goes. And uh, Josh, the older guy, um, was there kind of going, oh, he's going to tell us a lesson here. And Jake's just there, curious, the younger guy. And I say, see this, <laughs> see this bath of water? There's a crest and a trough. So the top of the wave and the bottom of the wave. And it's all the, right, it's all the same water. And they're like, yeah. I was like, and so if you think about your life, that's what it's like. There's always a high and a low. And sometimes you're on the high or sometimes you're stuck in the low. And when you're stuck in the low, it feels like you're never going to get back to the high. But look, it comes back. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, and when you're on the high, you got to enjoy it because you're going to have another low. That's life. And, and uh, they're like, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, Did you get it? And Josh is like, yeah. Can I go back to my room now? And then Jake's like staring at the bath. And I'm like, oh, Jake's really into this. Jeez, I, I would have thought it would have been Josh. And Jake goes, will you put me in there and do that? <laughs> and I was like, okay, so I get in. Blah, blah. So, so the, the thing was, a couple of weeks later, Josh breaks his arm, falls from the trampoline, breaks his arm. And I, I had been work, at work, come home. He's all casted up and all that, like um, the sling on and all that. And I was like, going, how are you, buddy? How are you doing? You're very brave. And he's like, yeah, yeah. And he's like staring at TV. So, you know, the way a kid barely sees you when, you, when they're in the zone. And I was like, um, how'd you deal with it? And he's like, going, ah, it's nothing. It was, it was just the trough of a wave. And I was like, and what? He got it. He listened. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that the kids, when they grow up, will never know the little nudges and little things that rub off. And, and you know this, man, like the amount of times people have said stuff to you as a child that manifested or a, a, a great leader or mentor or somebody in your life that you didn't appreciate in the moment. But years later, you go, oh, my God, that guy said that to me and made such a huge difference. So anyway, that's the contrast thing, because you see it in everything. You, you go after a vision. So the vision is, if you think about, I want to get to the top of that wave and I, you know, I'm starting from nowhere. And oftentimes if fear doesn't get you, like you talked about as a kid, like sometimes the fear will get you and you won't even get onto the pitch. We won't even get onto the playing field to actually start your idea, whether it's a startup or write a book or start a podcast, whatever. Sometimes fear will block you, but then sometimes other people will block you. And, and the really interesting thing is sometimes it's people who you expect to support you. And I often think a good way to think about this back to the thought experiments is think about it like your life's a play. And for every hero, there's an anti-hero. For every Batman, there's a Joker, <laughs> right? Yeah. And the, jo- the Joker's going to come out. And sometimes the Joker's going to be somebody you expect to be supporting. And you're going to be going, what? You? I cannot believe it's you. And you're like, and, and I was telling me again, 
back to the kids. He was telling my son about the Batman Joker because he likes Batman. And because he was telling me about a, a bully, a guy who perceives to be a bully in his school. And I was like, um, well, imagine being his role in your life. That's terrible, isn't it? And he's like, oh, yeah, I'd hate that. And I was like, yeah, well, just be lucky you're Batman. <laughs> right? And uh, I think that's a really useful way to navigate the world because sometimes I see it like almost a pinball machine or a, a divining rod. You know, those things where you figure out where the water is, you know, the, the sticks. And sometimes you'll just bounce it off somebody and you go, well, that didn't work out, whether it was a relationship, uh, whether it was a role that you were playing or, or getting picked. You know, I certainly felt like that a lot, but I've been picked that. And, that, and now I look back on rugby and I go, if I did succeed more, as much as I wanted to, back then if I went and played for Lions and all of these ambitions I had I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now and I certainly wouldn't be thinking how I think now so I kind of and I only made peace with that through writing a book man like looking the writing a book such a transformative experience for you as well and because I didn't want to put on paper that I didn't truly believe and it really helped me see that that was just a contrast that I had to manage that if I didn't go through a lot of the the troughs that I did, like for example, in, in Leinster, I was getting player player of the month at one stage, getting picked, might get back in the Irish team, and the coach just suddenly Shepherd hooks me, never picks me again. And if if he didn't do that, like I hated the guy for years, like year, I held on to this poison in my veins for years. And I realized, wow, if he didn't do that, I wouldn't have got to play for Toulouse, which was my dream. That was my dream. Not, you know, yes, I want to play for Ireland. And I did. I was lucky. But if if I didn't not get picked that time, I wouldn't have played for Toulouse. And, and you know, I think that managing contrast just is a really useful mental model to, sur- to survive, you know, to get through all the bad times we get through. Because you, you start seeing... Actually, if I didn't get that, I wouldn't have got that. If I didn't do that, I wouldn't have, that wouldn't have happened. Actually, and then you, then sometimes you do get stuck in these sliding door moments. And you kind of go, I wonder what would have happened. And I, you know what? I stopped doing that, man. I, I, I stopped. I used to do that all the time and kind of go and wander in my mind and kind of go. And then I was going, no, I'm wasting. I'm actually wasting cognitive capacity that I could be creating with. And that's been useful for me is to go just let go of those pains, those grudges and those hurts that we all hold and actually go well well, if I let go of that and then that frees up some part of me inside my life force that I can be using to create something new rather than hold on to something that's not serving me that's poisoning me over time so that's been really helpful one of the stories you tell in the book is it an old Chinese proverb about the horse that that goes runs away that disappears do you mind do you mind telling that story because I, I it's a good end point maybe to our conversation around not just opposite thinking, but also don't always think that one thing leads inevitably to another, that, that you've got to almost trust the process. How would you explain how the, how the father in this particular story is thinking? Yeah, so I, I, where I read it, actually, and it's, it's such a beautiful story, um, Alan Watts. I don't know. Do you know Alan Watts? I don't, Do you, I don't. You, you, I'm, oh, man, you, you, like... I, I introduce the people to Alan Watts wherever I can because he was a British philosopher. And what he what his 
what he decided to do in life was actually bring lessons from the east to the west. So he used to go on these junkets and these, he, he was like an early Eckhart Tolle. He was going around doing these seminars, Joe Dispenza. He was telling people about these lessons, these ancient lessons, uh, Taoism and all this stuff. And I listened to his, his, his YouTube channel, which was just magnificent. And, you know, there's, there's um, an interesting thing about just to, to say where this probably came from. There's, there's a really interesting, because I, I love what I love doing about the showman. And when you read stuff is sharing it back and kind of going, I got to share this. And, and that's probably what that is coming from, from my children. Like that, I was kind of go to myself, wow, I wish somebody would have told me that when I was a kid, you know, and I, and I don't know, I, I, sometimes I might overdo it or whatever, but the Alan Watts stuff was magnificent. And he, there's an interesting thing that happens so throughout your day i was explaining again i explained this in my workshops but also to the kids if you think about a lake of water and you're there and it's still and you throw in a, a pebble it will create the ripple and the ripple are the waves and actually our brain waves are so when you have a thought a wave a thought is like the pebble into the water and then it creates a wave and throughout the day brain wave states are slower and faster so when you're in your sleep, you're in delta, uh, you're in delta mode. In in alpha, you're kind of concentrating. Beta, you're concentrating. And flow, you go into like deep alpha, etc. But the really interesting one I'm fascinated by is theta. And theta only happens really at either when you're meditating or in the morning at nighttime. And what it's like is the brain... The, the conscious brain and the subconscious brain are like yin and yang, but 5% of us is our conscious brain. 95% is the subconscious. And the subconscious absorbs all these lessons through observation. And this is the whole idea of, of a child. Up until they're seven, they're mainly in theta mode. So they learn by observation because that's how they learn to navigate the world and survive. And even so, some people bring it a bit step further, like guys like Bruce Lipton, that biology of belief, magnificent book, I've had him on the show. And he'll go, that theta wave will actually instruct the stem cells of the, of the person how to act. So, you know, sometimes the people will reflect on the outside, how they feel on the inside, all that kind of stuff. But the stuff you absorb at morning time and at nighttime have an immense impact on how you think and how you behave. And so much so that's, that's why doing gratitude in the morning at nighttime is so important or doing your meditation then or having positive thoughts then. Most of us, you know, at nighttime, it's like, oh, I have that shitty meeting with that jackass tomorrow. Oh, and, and, or it's like, oh, I have to do that project. Oh, I have to study. And we're in this kind of negative mode instead of actually flipping it and going, okay, well, if I can actually get into a moment of gratitude even if I'm in the trough of a wave and go, I'm grateful for, and, and feel it, not say it. That's a huge thing. you got to feel it because emotions are the language of the body and words are the language of the mind. And, and it's different to you, you because when you feel it like that and plus theta, you become almost like a magnet for those opportunities in life. That's the, it's the science behind the law of attraction, essentially. But the whole idea here is, you actually create a positive lens through which you experience the world then. So that, that's the theta stuff. And, and that's important because I actually listened to Alan Watts sometimes and fall asleep. And I, I didn't know where I had got this story that I'm going to tell you. 
And that, and, and I'm actually pretty sure it must have come from an Alan Watts story because that's who actually retold it or translated it. I can't find any other translations. So here's how it goes. Once upon a time, there was a Chinese farmer whose horse ran away. That evening, all his neighbors came around to commiserate. They said, we're so sorry to hear about your horse. The next day, the horse came back, but this time brought seven wild horses with it. And in the evening, everybody came back to go, oh, isn't that lucky? What a great turn of events. Now you have eight horses. And the farmer said, maybe. The following day, his son tried to break in one of the horses while riding it and was thrown and broke his leg. All the neighbors come over and say, oh, what a pity. And the, and the farmer says, maybe. The next day, the conscription office, officers from the army come along to conscript people to go to war. And they rejected his son because he had broken his leg. And once again, the neighbors come around to say, isn't that great? And the farmer says, maybe. And what this is about is the whole process of nature is an integrated process of immense complexity. And it's really impossible ever to tell whether something is good or bad. So, you know, you see, this thought made me think of being a kid and seeing taking a spider out of the, or fly out of the spider web, you know, and thinking you're doing a good thing or, and actually interfering ruined the whole thing. And it's just a great way, I think, to live life is to go, Sometimes somebody cuts you off in traffic and you're a little bit late, but maybe it could have saved you having an accident. You missed that flight. Maybe you were meant to miss that flight. All those kind of things. And you could call it magical thinking. But it, I just think it's just to keep yourself calm and relaxed and back to how you started the breathing. Just remember, don't waste your life force and stuff that's sapping it. Just actually kind of go, I'll give the universe the benefit of the doubt and say it's got my back. This episode was a constant stream of takeaway thoughts and ideas from Aiden. Understanding opposites, positive thinking, all stuff that I value really highly. And he made me also think about how we can look at how we frame our decision making and we can change the negative events that happen to us to give confidence and reduce the fear. One decision that you can be on the negative end of can still turn out to be exactly what you needed and letting go of those negative thoughts. He explained this point so well. They can give you positive energy. Coming up next week, we delve into his life as a professional rugby player at clubs like Dax in France, as well as Leinster, the mighty Toulouse, a London Irish and Ireland, and how that all started him on a path to the way he thinks now. This episode was rammed with references and mentions and we'll make sure all of these are in the show notes and you can find those at benryan.co.uk forward slash podcast. Aidan can be found on social media at at Aidan McCullen on Twitter and his fantastic podcast is called The Innovation Show and it's available wherever you get your pods as well as YouTube. His book, Undisruptible, is available on Amazon and on the bookshelves of all good bookshops as well as the electronic and audible versions. You can find all of our shows on the usual platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. And if you fancy leaving a review and you haven't done that yet, that'd be awesome too. This has been the Ben Ryan Podcast. Thanks for listening and I look forward to bringing you another great chat next Wednesday. <laughs>